another episode of the Ocean Pancake Podcast and potentially the last one for 2019. What a year it has been and thank you guys so much for being part of this journey with me. And yeah, just listening to the podcast, liking it, sharing it with your friends. I absolutely love when you guys tag me on social media, Vegan Diver Cat or Ocean Pancake when you're listening to this or uh, make sure to join the Ocean Pancake Facebook group where we can get chatting about all things ocean conservation and sustainability. It's been an amazing year. Thank you guys so much for being part of it. And yeah, you are going to love this episode. For anyone who is interested in getting involved in marine conservation, then this is one for you. I interview Francesca Trotman, who's the founder and managing director of Love the Oceans. Love the Oceans is a marine conservation organization, charity, um, which is based off the coast of Mozambique and works on all sorts of projects, ranging from education, teaching the local people how to swim, doing research about sustainable fishing practices, as well as research in terms of the fisheries, shark fisheries, the humpback whale identification, the plastic pollution, as well as coral reefs. She has many volunteers which head over over there. So if you are a volunteer and want to help out, this is an episode for you. So have a listen if you are interested in what's happening with shark fishing and which sharks are the most targeted and how are sharks targeted? Are they eaten? What is the fin trade really doing? Then this is a great episode for you. Also, just a side note, I apologize greatly for any barking or dogs you hear in this episode. Uh, it's really hard to keep the dogs quiet, especially when they're so excited and just want to be involved. So yeah, just letting you know. Thanks for listening. Every day, there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean. Whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution, if the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ocean Packet Podcast. Today I am here with uh, Francesca Kaplan, who is the founder and managing director of Love the Oceans, which is a marine conservation um, NGO charity, which is operating out of Mozambique. So welcome to the podcast, Francesca. Thank you. <laughs> so excited to have you on board. I just finished watching uh, the little documentary that was made about your organization. Cool. <laughs> what, when, when was that documentary filmed? And can you let us know a bit more about um, organization? Sure. Um, that documentary was filmed in 2018. That's... Um, we're partnered with Photographers Without Borders, which is another NGO that creates media for um, NGOs and helps bridge the gap between charities and media creation. Um, so they came out and spent, the CEO and one of the videographers came out and spent about two weeks with us um, filming that. We were actually really unlucky with the weather um, <laughs> for really? the entire two weeks. 
they had about I think three or four days of decent weather the rest was just complete the rest was just complete blowouts um so we couldn't even get on the water uh so all the water stuff was filmed in about a four day three or four day period <laughs> um but um yeah it kind of showcases what we do um which is um a load of different research and community outreach so our mission is to establish a marine protected area in our bay and the surrounding region um in Jangamo and um yeah everything we do kind of aims towards that so we do a heap of different research we do fisheries research humpback whales coral reefs ocean trash um other megafauna so like whale sharks and manta rays and then we also are starting a tagging project next year too um and then the marine protected area uh will be locally managed um so obviously there has to be some education around mpa management and marine resource management so we also have an educational outreach section of the organization as well and that's where we um teach basic marine resource management we teach swimming um and we also uh work with the adult community as well um talking about marine conservation and doing workshops and entrepreneurial uh projects that sounds amazing i wasn't actually too familiar with what the ocean life is like around mozambique um could you tell the listeners a bit more about what they would expect if they went for a dive there or what kind of creatures sure. live there so um, we're really lucky. We have the flagship species, um, like the ones that, you know, Blue Planet and stuff use to get people really enthusiastic about the marine environment. Um, we have whale sharks, manta rays and humpback whales and dolphins as well, two species of dolphins. Um, but the, so we're using them as a financial incentive for the marine protected area because uh, especially the humpback whales during whale season, which is June to November, they are everywhere. There are so many of them. I've never been anywhere in the world with that many whales, um, which is incredible. And obviously a really um, feasible financial um, source of income that's sustainable uh, versus unsustainable fishing. Um, so yeah, we're trying to use that as the financial incentive for the government to establish a marine test area. We've got manta rays and whale sharks. They're less common than the humpback whales are in whale season. Um, whale sharks just kind of turn up once a month <laughs> uh, and we can never predict it <laughs> and uh manta ray is much the same yeah whale sharks are quite the elusive species um i know when i was i was in comoros for eight months last year um and oh, yeah. i think that's very much similar kind of ocean situation happening there where we had humpback whales constantly from june to about october it was a bit earlier yeah. when they left uh, but same thing, the fishermen reported that they saw whale sharks sometimes. They even reported of pulling up a fresher shark um, and, you know, plenty of reports of other species. That's where the coelocan was um, rediscovered after uh, it was thought to be extinct for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, but yeah, the humpback whales are definitely kind of a massive tourist draw and everything like that. So we actually had a lot of um, people coming in from all over the world to dive and swim with them. So I'm guessing it's yeah. very similar in, in that respect. Definitely. Are there many um, like companies and organizations which take people out to swim with the humpback whales or at least observe them from the boats? 
Um, no, so there aren't uh, that many organisations in our area. There are a few dive centres and stuff. Um, we're partnered with the World Cetacean Alliance. Um, so we don't actually swim with them from our dive centre. Our dive centre is the Paddy Green Star Centre. Um, but uh, yeah, well, there are only a few places, but that's kind of what we're trying to point out to the government, that there's such an opportunity for a really successful ecotourism industry that's currently not being harnessed. Um, don't get me wrong, there needs to be a lot of development around like responsible tourism and how to handle that correctly, um, which is why we work with the WCA. So there's um, a few different dive centres and stuff in our area, yeah. but um, none, well, there's not a whole lot of like specific whale tourism. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what we're kind of trying to point out to the government, um, that um, we can basically prove to a tourist that they can see a humpback whale during whale season. So it's a very successful tourism industry. Um, and that's a very yeah, feasible source of income for the local community. Definitely. And as you were mentioning, it's a more sustainable income for the local community uh, as opposed to unsustainable um, solutions, which is potentially what's happening a lot now. Could you kind of paint us the picture of how the local people do support themselves currently or what has been the history which you potentially deem unsustainable? So historically um, it's been fishing which is quite normal for a, a less economically developed country that has a really extensive coastline um, and it was fine um, like the traditional fishing methods weren't very exploitative or anything like that but unfortunately obviously times change with modern technology and things like that. So fishing gear has changed in like the last, I don't know, about 10 years. Um, and uh, gill nets are used a lot more and long lines targeted um, shark fishing. Um, and that's, you know, foreign influence kind of thing, bringing those uh, materials in. Um, the two methods specifically that we're working on getting banned are the gill netting and the uh, long lines. So the gill netting, is super unsustainable because it's just a massive net that you put into the water um, and you're trying to catch well the fishermen are using them to catch uh, fish but they catch a lot of other things by accident so they're catching a few weeks ago we had dolphins we've had turtles we've had even a baby humpback whale like so much stuff that is not targeted um, is caught by accident which is what we call bycatch mm -hmm. um, and then also with the shark long line, that is actually targeted shark fishing. Um, it's actually shark killing rather than shark finning. There's a slight difference between the two. Shark finning is when the bodies are discarded, but most of the time the bodies are actually landed in our area and then consumed. Um, but the fins are taken off for the shark fin industry. Um, so we're also trying to combat that. Um, and part of that practice is already illegal. Um, it's illegal to fish some of the species of sharks that they're catching. Um, scalloped hammerhead is one of the most popular types of species of sharks um, caught in the area, but also it's one of the most sought after in the shark fin trade and also one of the most endangered. <laughs> so um, it's not particularly great for the shark um, population in our area. So we're trying to get the gill trade and um, the fin industry essentially um, stopped in the area.
I know that gill nets are still used up and down the Australian coastline um, as a method of beach safety technology, um, where they're just saying it's the way to keep sharks out of the beach areas. But as you mentioned before, there's a lot of bycatch of rays and turtles, and even humpback whales have been getting entangled in the ones around the Australian coastline. So it's pretty, pretty clear that it's not an ideal kind of solution for yeah. keeping beaches safe, or then it's not a sustainable way of fishing. Uh, for us, there's not even enough really, um, there's not enough sharks to even justify saying that it's to keep the, the um, beaches safe. There's literally never been any shark attacks in that area apart from um, like a fisherman in the estuary who had like a massive bag of dead uh, fish right by him and got bitten on like the back of the thigh by a bull shark in the estuary. Um, and that's because he was stood in the water with a massive bag of dead fish. Um, I feel like most of those shark bite incidents are, you know, once we actually have all the information around it, it's very clear what's happening. Like, oh, like that spear fisherman was holding a fish really close to his body while a shark repeatedly came to check him out and didn't let go of the fish and then got bitten in the arm or something. Well, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what we had in the area as well. The only one that I know of in our local area is when the shark longliners were out and they were pulling a bull shark up for like three hours. And it, um, they, they, their boat is really, really small that they longline with. Um, so they, what they do is they usually pull in the longline, take the shark off, rebate the line and redrop it. So the actual gear never comes out of the water really. Um, and they were trying to wrestle a like three meter bull onto the boat and um, flip the boat and then the bull shark bit the oh, wow. was trying to <laughs> So it was fighting for its life. Yeah, that would be very scary though. I can imagine that that would drum up some fear in um, the minds of the fishermen for sure. Yeah. Um, could you describe a little bit about what a long line is exactly for people who haven't seen one before? Sure. So a long line is um, a targeted pelagic fishing method. So basically in our area, it varies massively from industrial scale to small scale, but in our area in particular, what I'm talking about is um, essentially a few boys that you have that are permanently moored between those boys and they can be kilometers apart as well. Um, Between those boys, you have a line that joins them. um, And then off that line, you have lots of other smaller lines and they have hooks on them. And those are then baited in our area, it's with freshwater eels, um, but you can have dozens and dozens of hooks on there. And those hooks hang um, kind of in the pelagic zone, uh, baited hooks hang there. Um, and so they uh, attract the sharks in. And also sharks are uh, cannibals. So if one is caught, uh, they'll generally eat that one, which can then lead to basically baited water and more sharks coming into the area and being caught on the line. We actually had one hammerhead once come up with just the head was on the hook. (laughs) The rest of the book. Yeah, it was quite intense. (laughs) So do you get to actually see um, the fishermen in action? Do you get out there and see what's going on? Um, So I had to go out on the boat one time to um, count the number of hooks so we could work out the fishing effort. I've been obsessed with sharks since I was eight and it was the reason that I started the organization. So, uh, it was challenging. Um, and 
not yeah like not very pleasant at all um but uh it is important to understand uh the trade and understand where the fishermen are coming from um most people in our area leave school around the age of 12 or 13 so there's no education around sustainability or conservation um the fishermen are unaware of like long-term effects on the shark population um so that like you can't blame the fishermen um and it's important kind of to emphasize that the fishermen aren't the baddies they don't know about what they're doing um which is kind of the whole point of the education section that we run to um kind of educate people in the local community about um the sustainability of the shark fin trade and lack of sustainability essentially you touched upon briefly so you fell in love with sharks at the age of eight but what kind of life journey did you go on to end up living and working um, in Mozambique and starting this organization there can you tell us a little bit more about your journey yeah sure um so yeah my mum took me to the London Aquarium when I was eight years old I'm British um <laughs> and I was pressed up against the shark tank like a weird little kid um <laughs> And the guy that was cleaning the shark tank at the time picked up one of the teeth on the floor that the um, sharks had shed and gave it to me to keep. And I kept it in um, a box for like five years, which was quite an indicator that I like sharks. Um, and then uh, I learned to dive when I was 13. And when it came to university, um, well, I just knew I liked diving and underwater stuff. So I chose marine biology, didn't really research it that much much my parents despair um, <laughs> and just kind of went and went to University of Southampton and then when I was at uni I wanted to make myself as employable as possible so I could get a job when I left so at the end of my first year I did my professional diving qualifications um, and then at the end of my second year I took a photography internship in Mozambique and yeah that was exactly where I'm still based because when I was on that, I saw my first shark killing, i.e. humans killing sharks, which obviously was really emotional. Um, and I kind of spent like two days really upset with the fishermen. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realised that it wasn't the fishermen that I should be upset at. It was the whole trade. And the reason that they were catching the sharks was for the shark fin trade. So then I wanted to look at how bad that shark fin trade was. So I went back to university. So that was... Um, that was at the so that was my summer of my second year I went into my third year um, and I was doing an integrated master's so it was like a four-year course so during my third year I did a presentation and recruited um, three research assistants three women so we went out at the end of my um, third year and collected my thesis data my master's thesis data um, for four months with the shark fishermen there learning about the trade um, and understanding a bit more about it and getting data on it to see the rate of the shark catches. Um, and then, yeah, I went into my fourth year, wrote up my dissertation and was getting the exact results you'd think in terms of like the sustainability of the shark fin trade. So like unsustainable, detrimental effect to the local marine ecosystem, all of that kind of stuff. But I couldn't get my um, stats significant because I didn't have enough data. So I wanted to get more data so I could get my stats significant, so I could publish paper, so I could lobby the government for legislation change. So I um, needed a team to collect data with me. So I founded the organisation initially just to continue my shark fisheries research, but 
as soon as I found it because I found it in like the November and um, university term finished in the July so I had quite a lot of time to like you know think about what I was doing and stuff and I basically gave up my social life and sleep um, although I've still done that five years later um, and um, yeah I started reading around like successful conservation strategies and how to implement long-lasting change um, and the education section was born almost immediately um, and uh, yeah it would like we developed loads of different areas of research quite quickly to use a multi-pronged approach with the government um, financial incentives all of that kind of stuff um, so it's kind of matured over time um, Andrea our director she came on board uh, in 2015 um, within kind of the first year of operations so we've both been um, running kind of full pelt since then um, which is yeah pretty good it's um, been really exciting uh, and really overwhelming <laughs> I can't imagine uh, um, I know I saw my first shark killing um, last year when I was when I was on the Sea Shepherd boat and it was the com commercial fishermen who were paid by the government to take the sharks off of the drum lines which are also Put on the coast of Australia to protect swimmers. Again, one of the dumbest things. Anyway, <laughs> have a whole podcast about that topic if anyone's curious. Um, but yeah, I saw them pull pull the shark into the boat, and they they clearly did it as fast as possible to kind of you know shield us from it. But it you know you can see that they feel kind of guilty about it because they were trying to keep it hidden, you know, keep it away from the cameras and stuff because it is very confronting. To see these beautiful ocean creatures just hauled yeah. onto the boat and killed and um i think the long lines basically sound like the drum lines that australia also uses to just capture sharks but they don't even eat them they just kill them um, and i think some of the sharks that they catch get cut up and they are put back onto the line um as you said since right. yeah since the sharks are cannibals they would just eat um, their own kind once they're faded. Um, you touched upon it briefly, but you said that you know you started doing this work to to see the impacts of the fishing of sharks on the local environment. So could you share a bit more about what taking sharks out of the water actually has as an impact on the marine ecosystem? Sure. So we're still like kind of um, working out <laughs> what's <laughs> happening in the local area. Um, so, but on like a very simple level, the, what we, what we actually, it's in that, it's in that documentary on our homepage, um, Pascal puts it perfectly, but we actually teach, um, basic marine resource management. So Pascal is our community outreach manager, um, and he leads that and he does this exercise that, um, uh, where we split the school group into, um, small fish, big, so like, yeah, small fish, big fish, um, sharks and humans so it's four different groups mm -hmm. and we say and we have them all standing at the start and we say okay humans you fish all the sharks um so the shark group has to sit down and then we say okay so now the big fish don't have any predators so we get the kids to, you know like spread out and wiggle and they're really happy because mm -hmm. they don't have any predators but then they don't have anything to keep their population in check so they overgraze their prey so all the little fish sit down then they don't have any prey anymore so all the big fish sit down and then it's a really poignant moment um because we work with like 10 to 13 year olds so it's young kids when 
it's just the human group that's stood up and there's nothing else left alive because they've removed the apex predator and explaining what a keystone species is and why sharks are so important to human survival because obviously then the humans have to sit down because it's all the other groups sat down um so we really like using that exercise to kind of demonstrate to kids the importance of sharks um in an ecosystem um but in terms of specifically in our area what we're looking at now is um developing off our baseline data further hypotheses um so what we found is for instance we have a massive imbalance of, um, of herbivores versus carnivores in the area so with our coral reef data, we're looking at um, reef health, so that's spatial distribution as well, um, which we can relate back to destructive fishing methods, but we're also looking at the associated reef species, so we can look at herbivores versus carnivores. Um, and one of the areas we're looking at, at the moment, which we don't have the results for yet, so I'm not sure um, what the outcome is, um, I'll be able to tell you this time next year, but mm -hmm. um, basically uh, we have over 90% of the fish in the area are carnivores, oh, wow. um, which is a humongous imbalance, 92%, massive, massive imbalance, um, and herbivores are crucial for reef health. Um, and that could be a number of reasons. That could be um, targeted herbivore fishing, although we haven't seen a lot of that. Um, but we are going through our logs and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it can also be um, shark fishing uh, and pretty much exactly what I said about the exercise with the kids um, and no predators being there to take out the carnivorous fish. Um, and them overgrazing on the herbivores and the balance just well not being balanced anymore um there's a few different reasons that's a possibility um and with our educational outreach we're always talking about you know like preferred species and sustainable fishing methods so we talk a lot about spear fishing um which is obviously very targeted mm -hmm. and spear fishing is great um but, but with spear fishing because it's so targeted you also do need to be catching the right species um, and the right sizes so there also needs to be some education based around that and what that looks like um, so yeah in terms of like our specific area that's kind of what we're looking at at the moment um, and we've yeah we had like two years where uh, so in 2017 there was a really bad cyclone that hit our base and um, essentially buried everything on the shoreline including all the fishing gear which um, obviously it sucked that um, people didn't have an income but in terms of like the shark population um, it was kind of good because they weren't being fished anymore yeah. um, so for like two years uh, there was no long learning going on and we saw a tiny bounce back in like um, just the amount of sharks we were seeing on dives observationally um, not like a huge amount because two years is obviously not a very long time for shark yeah. populations to recover um but even in that short time we saw an increase in shark sightings which is um just kind of shows that there is the potential for a, a really successful tourism industry there um specifically around sharks as well um and i mean we're on the same coast as like the wild coast of south africa which is one of the most successful shark tourism industries in the world um so it's perfectly possible and very feasible um but currently with the exploitation of sharks and the fin trade it's just not going to happen right now. So we need to work to get those fishing gear, that fishing gear banned and the area protected before that can happen. Definitely. But 
what would be some of your solutions that you are suggesting for the local fishermen, which do unfortunately depend on this shark fishing trade um, to, you know, feed their families? Because as you said, you know, it's not their individual fault. It's this bigger system that they're dependent on. And, you know, in their situation where they're just looking for the next meal, um, what kind of solutions are you guys offering or suggesting that they work towards? So we have an, a um, whole section of the organisation kind of under, under our sustainability section, uh, which is focused on uh, alternative livelihoods. So some of it's still focused on fishing, i.e. changing the type of fishing that's happening, um, because realistically people aren't going to stop fishing because the sea is there and there is a marine resource to be exploited. Um, so we're trying to so we've got like a voluntary equipment exchange initiative um which is basically when the fishermen can come and swap their unsustainable methods of fishing i.e gill nets um in exchange for um, more sustainable methods of fishing like um spear fishing um and we secure like the really decent spear fishing gear and stuff like that obviously with gill net um fishing you can be on a boat and drop the gill net in from the boat so you don't need to swim with long lining, you have to be able to swim, uh, hence our swimming initiative. So a lot of our work is about like identifying a alternate source of income and then um, trying to identify any barriers and eliminate any barriers that can stand in someone's way from using that source of income. Um, so often it's more complex than just kind of and thinking up an alternate source of income. That said, um, we're starting a, a sustainable honey harvesting project um, and also an aquaponics project. So both of those are literally just alternate sources of income, um, supplementing family income. Um, so aquaponics, um, so that's basically a sustainable farming unit. So you have a tub of fish, which in our area is tilapia fish, is just like the species that's um, the easiest. Uh, tilapia fish and then a veg bed, essentially and you have a gradient pump and the water goes through where the fish are, the fish soil the water um, and essentially release nutrients into the water, which the water then goes into the veg bed and the veg takes up the nutrients, reoxygenates the water and then it goes back around into the fish tank. So it's a sustainable unit. The only input that you really need um, is food, uh, which uh, is very affordable and you can harvest the fish and you can harvest the veg as well. Um, so it's mainly like leafy veg that you grow so kind of like lettuce and that kind of thing um, so that's one and you can do that on a on a um, like one person scale or you can do it on a community scale and we're looking at both at the moment um, and then uh, we have our honey harvesting project sorry uh, <laughs> we have our honey harvesting project which is uh, exactly what it says on the tin um, setting up hives and um, training people uh, using, uh, well, a different company because we don't have that kind of expertise um, and training people in honey harvesting and bottling it and all the products that come along with it. So obviously a bunch of like beeswax projects as well um, that come along with that. Um, so that's kind of part of what we do. Our swimming initiative is one of our uh, most successful initiative so far in terms of our community projects although to be fair all of our community we never had one that fails or anything um, so uh, yeah we have a few different ones but our swimming one it can seem like a bit of a tangent for a marine conservation NGO to teach swimming 
um, but it's a really important part of what we do. So obviously on the basic level, it's stopping people drowning. We're in a bay that's had 13 drownings in the last two years. So um, drowning is not an uncommon cause of death in our area. And you can imagine, say like 90% of people in our area don't swim. And you can imagine that if uh, you didn't swim and none of your family swam and no one you knew swam, and anytime anyone went in the ocean, they died, you would not feel very friendly towards the ocean. And if you're not feeling very friendly towards the ocean, you're probably not going to be passionate about protecting it. Um, so on a kind of basic level, we're saving people's lives and trying to foster a passion for the marine environment. But also, so um, Pascal, Liz and myself, uh, who are all LTO staff, we're all STA qualified, which is the Swim Teacher Association in um, UK. Uh, and basically we teach beginner, intermediate and advanced classes. And when uh, we teach four to 18 year olds and when the kids get to um, the advanced classes, we offer them the opportunity to become what we call an ocean conservation champion. So they're usually around 16 to 18 at the time they reach our advanced classes. And those ocean conservation champions are offered the opportunity to do further qualifications. So we sponsor them English qualifications, um, diving, surfing, swimming, instructing, mainly marine based. Um, and that's because um, with the establishment of the marine protected area, job creation will come through um, the marine ecotourism space. So having qualifications in those areas will help them get a job. So on a basic level that helps um, alleviate poverty and with poverty alleviation you get conservation because people have the financial luxury to think a bit more about conservation um, but also in exchange the students also become ambassadors in their community so they teach their own workshops in conservation develop their own materials um, and deliver them to their own communities which you can reach a huge number of people through investing in only a few individuals that way, which is an extremely efficient way for a small NGO like ours to work. Um, so that's kind of like, and that's um, with working essentially the next generation of fishermen, um, the four to 18 year olds. Uh, so that's another area that, we, that we're working in. Um, the idea of it, of it is that it all kind of comes together to create alternate sources of income to um, unsustainable fishing methods. That's amazing. I can imagine that that would be very valuable for the kids in the future to, to have those skills that when the ecotourism does hopefully kick off, which I think I think the whole world is going in that direction, and then they'll have the qualifications to be able to like lead and be part of, um, of the change. Uh, I know that's some of the work we were doing as well in uh, Comoros is very similar in in the education, uh, <laughs> helping people to swim is is one of the biggest, and I don't think it's a tangent at all. Because as you said, um, you know, swimming alleviates fear and it allows to foster that healthy relationship with the ocean, which then improves the chances of conservation being able to happen. So it makes it makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, basically the work you're doing is absolutely inspirational and amazing and it's a shame that i haven't actually heard of your organization before um but for people who you know love the sound of what you do or want to get involved is there any way they can help you guys out in your projects or anything like that yep yeah, yeah um so we have 
a uh, we have volunteer programs that people can come out and get involved in. Um, and there's kind of something for everyone as well, because we're partnered with a few different other charities and NGOs too. So um, we have our two and five week programs, which are for uh, students studying related subjects at university um, uh, who are really passionate about the marine environment and want to get field experience. Each of our programs help out with almost every single uh, part of the organisation bar things like grant writing, which I'm sure most people won't be upset about <laughs> not doing. Um, but um, it's great because people see kind of like the inner workings of a small NGO because I'm out there myself and so all my staff. Um, so you kind of see every aspect and it gives you the opportunity to kind of rack our professional marine biologist brains um, and kind of build a network and find out what life really is like and what some of the limitations can be um which can be really um a lot of people don't think about things like that when they're looking at going into tropical marine biology like they sometimes we we have students that kind of um picture things in their head of how they think it's going to be and then the reality can be extremely different um so it's really important to kind of understand the industry before you commit um your entire life to going into it that said i don't think i fully understood what i was doing before i went into <laughs> it and i wouldn't change it for the world so <laughs> um so we have yeah our um two and five week programs for that then we have a three-week program for people that are not studying related subjects at university um they don't have to be divers um you can learn all of that on site because see we're a paddy five star so plenty of time to see that um and then we're also partnered with a swim uh charity called swim taika and this year we're actually running um a swimming program where we take swim instructors out um and they help us teach swimming for the two-week winter holidays in august that are really intense um we teach about 200 kids to swim and um, that's wow. kind of a bit minimum yeah in that time so it's quite hectic um but if anyone's swim instructor and wants to get involved in that they can and then we also have a photography program that runs with photographers without borders which is the people that filmed that documentary and jeff who is actually the guy that filmed that entire documentary is the instructor for that um he's insanely qualified he's worked with like national geographic and like a bunch of ridiculously cool places and people um and he's the instructor for that so that's kind of um less about learning how to use a camera although you can do that if you want a lot of people are kind of like journalists or um, they want to get more into photography as a career and they come out to learn how to tell a story through um, a lens essentially uh, how to change the world using photography which is really interesting I get to sit in on that because I help run that program and uh, that's really captivating um, they use our NGO obviously as a case study hence they're coming to us um, and we get access to the photos that they take as well which really helps our campaigns the photographers it's great because they get exposure on our social media and stuff like that and obviously are learning from um such a great instructor but um for us it's really great because we get access to a lot of really great photos um so our media kind of um is often on top on top form because i can just be like oh yeah i'm looking at starting this campaign next year need some help like we're starting a period poverty thing in the near future and um I kind of mentioned it to one of the women who was taking photos and she took um, loads of photos of some of the girls that we're working with. So I've already got like a backlog of photos to run a campaign now, which is great for us. Um, yeah, and very unusual for an NGO our size. So 
our partnership with photographers without borders has been yeah phenomenal um so yeah we have a few different ways that people can get involved um on a simple level if they want to kind of get involved from their safer at home then they can always donate um and that's on our website um, we are a uk registered charity um and they can also adopt a whale shark which is really fun um so we have our whale shark database which identifies each individual shark so we have a few different sharks on our website that people can adopt um and people can also buy a christmas jumper which um every year we run a cheesy christmas campaign with an ocean pun on it so last year it was a hammerhead shark raising money for our shark fisheries research and the tagline was it's christmas let's get hammered um and then this year it's a crab with a coral reef coral christmas reef around it and um the tagline is santa claus but claws spelled c-l-a-w-s i got it that sounds amazing oh my god can i get one of those any chance i can get the hammerhead one or are there not left the hammerhead one (laughs) this year we might recycle it though it was very popular um Although we were told it wasn't child appropriate a lot of the time, so we had to pull another one out. We did. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I don't need to be child appropriate, so if you ever do, I'll recycle that one. <laughs> grab one of those for for me and the partner. I think we'd have a good laugh. Send it on the next Christmas card. <laughs> uh, and I just want to ask you, and this is something I ask all my guests, which come onto the podcast. And that's what is one piece of advice you would give to anyone who wants to protect our oceans or, you know, protect our planet? What is the one thing that you think people should do in kind of their everyday life to to make our earth a better place? Oh, that's a difficult question. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I would probably say educate yourself. Um, There's a lot of materials out there. Uh, around uh, living more sustainably and saving the planet it's actually a really complex issue Um, sometimes it seems like there's a really quick solution to something but actually sometimes it's not the best solution in the world and you can be causing accidentally another environmental problem by it Um, so I would say make use of the resources that are out there and read because there's a lot of information, a lot of documentaries, a lot of books, um, a lot of professionals doing a lot of very cool work um, that's really informative and it can help you make really good decisions in your day-to-day life. Um, I mean, that's what I've been doing. I I read loads. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's part of my job, but (laughs) I look up like recent research and stuff and um i guess i guess okay reading but also consuming less just of everything like plastics of like the problem the environmental issues that we're facing as a planet is because of overpopulation so consuming less is is going to help the planet i guess that would be my advice beautifully put um thank you once again for joining me here on the ocean hacking podcast francesca and hopefully I can um, come come check you guys out in Mozambique in the upcoming years. For sure. See the work Definitely. Maybe jump onto one of those programs.
Once again, thank you so much, Francesca, for joining me here on the Ocean Pancake Podcast. It was fascinating to hear you talk about and inspiring to see the work you have done to create positive change for our oceans. Very inspirational and a great note to leave 2019 on. I'm looking forward to the next year and all the things that you guys do. Uh, and yeah, hopefully one day I'll get to visit Love the Oceans and uh, get involved in some of this stuff. I always feel inspired and passionate um, knowing how many people out there are doing work for our oceans. And it's it's just so great. Sometimes when we are so surrounded with negative news and bad news, um, to you know hear something as inspirational as this and Francesca's work and her organization's work. So once again, thank you guys so much for joining me on the Ocean Pancake Podcast in 2019. I cannot wait to continue on the podcast in the new year. And yeah, if you want to support me, it'd mean the world to me. Give me the likes, the subscribes, the comments, all those things, as well as uh, join the fight, become a patron, uh, get yourself a Plastic is the Killer t-shirt. I would love to continue doing this work I'm doing. And yeah, making this world a better, more turquoise place. Thank you and see you in 2020.